Welcome to the Future Perfect Podcast, where we talk with compelling people breaking new ground in art, media, and entertainment. This podcast is produced by Future Perfect Studio, an extended reality studio creating immersive experiences for global audiences. Episodes are released every two weeks. Visit our website, futureperfect.studio, for more details. I'm Wayne Ashley, founder and creative director of Future Perfect. This week, we interview Liz Rosenthal, curator of Venice Biennale International Film Festival's official selection and competition program for Venice VR. Liz. Hi. Hi, <laughs> finally. Welcome. Very happy to have you with us and continue our discussions. Um, just as a reminder, we, you and I first met online back in 2020 when we participated as international jurors for the Taiwan Creative Content Immersive Grant. And since then, I've been following you um, and very impressed with how fully you participate in this expanding field of VR and immersive content production. You're a curator, um, an executive producer, a mentor, an incubator, a CEO, and an international speaker. But you actually started out in film. How did you arrive at VR from your experimental practice in filmmaking? Hi, Wayne. It's great to be on your podcast. Yeah, um, fantastic. So thank you for inviting me. So how did I start out from cinema? Um, I got involved in cinema quite, I guess, I'm going to say late in life, which is now I look and think, wow, that was young. Um, so I was in my, I guess, in my late 20s. Um, I started making short films. Um, yep with an ex-partner. Then I was in Edinburgh. I lived in Edinburgh in Scotland. And that was the place where the most important film festival in the UK used to be, the Edinburgh yep. Film Festival. Um, and I got a job running the project finance market. It was called the New British Expo, British Film. And I had to learn everything about the film business. So I came in quite late and then suddenly had to, you know, from making, you know, like many filmers, filmmakers starting making films, short films um, by themselves, then I suddenly was thrown into the industry. And at that time, I happened to... Um, so I don't want to make this story too long, and I'll try and make it short. I was watching all the rough cuts, or I was watching screeners of British films to include in the marketplace I was running. And I found a film by a director called Christopher Nolan that had been made on no budget. And, um, and it was brilliant, um, and no one knew about it. And I then uh, met somebody who was working with ultra-low-budget filmmakers in the US. That was He'd set up a new company that was part of the Independent Film Channel. He'd just met Chris, literally, hadn't seen the film, and was asking me, what great films are you seeing? And it was a finishing fun stroke, helping first-time, second-time filmmakers to make the first features. So we hit it off. He came to the festival, but his big thing was talking about digital video. Instead of using Super 16, which was at that time, was how could you get use available tools. So these new prosumer cameras, um, later the editing systems, which people weren't using, yeah. like Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Um, and I got involved with working with them. We hit it off, obviously. I, we bonded over Chris's first film. 
And I started working with them. And we were very much at the forefront of using digital production tools. Um, and then we got interested in this at the beginning of the 2000s, what the internet <laughs> and digital tools were going to do in terms of engagement and distribution and new forms of creativity. And that's where I took off. When the company got shut down by the film channel, we'd had we'd done 13 feature films. I was excited about this area because I thought, wow, this was the place where it's going to get exciting. The internet. So you and I talked about how important the internet was to both of our practices. I mean, the internet for me changed my whole trajectory. Um, what effect did the emergence of the internet as a public media space have specifically on your practice? Well, I think you'll probably get a clue from the name of my company I set up in sort of 2006, which is called Power to the Pixel. So I was super interested because I was, I've always been someone who's interested in working with producers and artists and how they can get their work supported and out into the world and use the best tools and the best ways to do that from a creative and a sustainability perspective. So I guess that was my first excitement was seeing the film business. It was totally, and like many businesses as they develop, you know, sectors as they develop and expand, they get more and more fragmented and you get people siloed into different parts of those sectors doing different jobs. And then the relationship between the maker and the producer and the audience is completely distanced. And that's a real problem, both on a, for, in a kind of return on investment or impact for the producers, for the initial people making it, and also in terms of how the, um, the form develops. Because you've got to be in touch with the user and the user experience. Always something, art forms kind of slow down or become irrelevant. And so... That really changed um, my practice thinking, wow, suddenly you've got all these available tools, a prosumer, and then now consumer tools. Um, how is this going to change the way that we make things and engage with audiences? So that was the initial side. And of course, yeah. being someone who's very producer, and I still am producer and artist focused, I'm always looking at how a how new ecosystems have to be developed around these things. Because... Um, Obviously, this is a totally new kind of Wild West in terms of what's out there. And um, and I take my hat off to people who start experimenting in this area yeah. and are curious. Um, and so really, it was the beginning, you know, the beginning of the 2000s first in terms of what I was involved in, because I came from film, was very much around engagement. And I saw these possibilities of filmmakers engaging in interesting ways with their audiences. But so, so a specific question to that, were you more concerned about creating traditional films and then distributing them widely using the internet as a kind of distribution platform and reaching different kinds of audiences? Or were you concerned about the possibility of creating actually new forms and thinking differently about the image and about its production? Well, what happened, it was all organic. And I'd say that my whole career has been organic. I haven't set out to go, oh, I want to do something internet or digital. I saw it from a place of need. So what happened is at first I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing for film distribution. Um, because yeah. I could really what happens, I was involved because our company was selling films as well as financing and then producing them. We got involved in everything because it was very small budget movies. I saw how it was completely breaking the film business back in the 90s. Um, and this is now everyone's like the film business is broken. You could see it back then. 
how it didn't function. So there was the side, it was around film distribution and then engagement, because once you start having something that has interactivity, you have a feedback loop with your audience and the tools that you're doing. So um, interesting enough, loads of, I, you know, what I realized was loads of sort of impact, especially documentarians who are working on film understood this because they had something active they wanted their audiences generally to do. Those that are activist filmmakers. And so interactive tools and the internet are super useful and a very basic way now when we think about it. So it was community engagement. And then once you start working with obviously a new tool, you realise that it's not the same. It's not just about reformatting the old medium onto the, with a new tool. All these new possibilities work and a whole new language. That everything yep. opens up. Yep. So in the past, you've discussed VR as the result of a complex stream of influences, most specifically film, theater, and video games. How do you see these streams coming together in VR? That's really interesting because VR and immersive content or XR is the area that I'm now working on that completely consumes me and I don't have enough time to follow all the developments. So, um, you know, that's totally, yeah, you've got it in the three different sectors. I think that's a kind of summary of how, you know, VR has the cinematic qualities of the big screen in certain circumstances, and that can be both live action shot. 360 video or it could be animation and you know the visual you know the immensity of being in a whole space you know relates in some way to that so especially to filmmakers and the film community go you've got to see a film on a big screen so this is way beyond so there's something around that then there's a participatory and spatial free roam aspect of immersive theater and particularly immersive theater because when you're in a virtual world um you're characters can interact with you in real time. And if they're, if you're designing real-time characters that are going to be interact in terms of what you do as a player or a user, um, then you're going to have to understand that real-time interactivity. So immersive theatre and the spatial idea, obviously, you're in, you could be free roam in an open-ended world or you could be in a contained world, but those are very much aspects of the of immersive spatial theatre. And then the interactivity and agency of games. So all of these things are super interesting. All these, and then of course there are people from, you know, the visual arts, from sound is so important in um, immersive, with immersive content. Um, there is, you know, all types of interactive designers and um, UX experts. So, but those are the three main things that I would probably point to. Yeah. So I'm conflating VR and XR, and I know that um, VR is a part of only one set of technologies and creative practices within a much larger field. Can you just briefly lay out what XR is so that um, our audiences understand that, that this is actually quite a complex a range of technologies and practices? Absolutely. So XR... Um which often gets mistaken for obviously the environmental movement, um, which is totally normal because that's like way more mainstream and probably should be um, than XR. So XR stands for extended realities. And I always, this is a real summary because there are other bits around the side. Um, I would say I'm going to put them into three different types of realities then. So the first is augmented reality, which you experience on a flat screen, so a phone or a tablet, which is 2D digital information that's layered over the real world. 
Then on the next one I would use stepping up is mixed reality. So that's 3D holographic information that is um, that has to be on a special mixed reality uh, glasses. Um, so for example, and so far they've you know it's really only the they're um, B2B solutions. So they're for enterprise. So the HoloLens by Microsoft and Magic Leap, very, very difficult and expensive devices. So I've seen beautiful projects, but they're prototypes shown in festivals because still, so this is 3D information you can move around and interact with, with your hands, you know, interact and pick out things. So very exciting, but you need a controlled environment still to make that work. And smart glasses are going to come out very, they're starting to come out the first um, big company that's a kind of forerunner is Enreal, um, who are doing deals with telco companies. I don't know if it's in the US yet, um, but I'm based in London and, um, and in the UK, not Canada, in case you have Canadian listeners. Um, and I, we don't have it here yet, but I think it's launched in Germany, Spain, Korea and Japan. Um, and those are consumer versions of the HoloLens um, and about $500 as opposed to about two and a half thousand, three thousand dollars. And then the final, I would say, is virtual reality, which completely dislocates you from the real world. And I don't know if you want me to go on, Wayne, just to talk about the expanse of what we are. I'm going to ask you in my next yeah. question. That's it's, it's great lead to this next thing. So many people are going to assume that VR is confined only to a headset and involves a mostly private and singular experience. But you have really opened up quite an expansive range of ways audiences can encounter this new medium. So lay out for us the many forms and contexts that audiences might encounter VR at, for example, the Venice Biennale. Yeah. So, um, which is VR really is impressive. The I mean, just I get very excited because there you are in this one festival, and you're able to really, you know, play out with such a continuum of, of of ways that one can interact with these kinds of experiences. So, yeah, I going back to Venice because Venice kind of encapsulates all the different forms of VR. So, I'm amongst the other things I do, one of the main, my main roles is I'm the curator with um, a dear friend and colleague, Michelle Rayak. We co-curate Venice Immersive together. So it's the immersive content competition section and official selection for the Venice International Film Festival, which is one of the um, A-list film festivals. There are four or five of them around the world. So important space where films release. And we are very lucky, the Biennale, who they run art and architecture events, but also the film festival, um, have are very excited about embracing this medium. We have our own section on our own island, which is quite exciting to exhibit. And because of Biennale, are all around ex exhibition, new art, you know, about champion different art forms and having these beautiful audience experiences. Um, we've been very lucky. We have this island. We can build up an exhibition and show all types of immersive experiences. So... I'll run through what that means because I think a lot of people get a chance to see one VR project and they go, that's VR. We are talking about a set of tools, many tools and technologies where you can create all kinds of uh, experiences and worlds. And so I'll run through what they yeah, are. Yeah, give us some examples. I think that'd be really helpful. So the first thing to slice up, um, I think VR is into kind of two different types of VR. I'm going to start there. There's um, three degrees of freedom and six degrees of freedom. So 
it, there's so many acronyms, but I'm going to break it down. So in three degrees of freedom, you're basically in a sphere. Um, so in a headset, it's a bubble that you can look around, but the field of distance between your eye and that sphere doesn't change. So you kind of have no agency. Sometimes there's a bit of gaze interactivity, but let's say you have no agency to change. You can't interact with, really with the what's happening. It plays out. Something will play out in the same way a film will. Um, but you could look around it. And so the context of you being there is kind of interesting. Then there's six degrees of freedom. And so just going back to three degrees of freedom, you can make things that some people say a subsection of that is live action. So that's shooting with a camera that's fixed, hopefully, because it's difficult when it's moving. Um, and you basically stitch together the images in post-production. So moving on to six degrees of freedom, because a lot of people say, oh, three DOF or three degrees of freedom, it's not real VR. So six degrees of freedom is you are in a space that to certain, depending on the creator and the studio, you have agency, you can interact um, and move around the world, interact with things in the world, be with other people in that world, um, and you know, feel immersed and have a sense of presence. And this is the most powerful thing about this medium is the sense of embodiment and presence. So within that, um, 360 is still beautiful 360 work that we're curating. Um, we've had some amazing documentaries showing shown in Venice. Um, so, for example, something like that's a big hit on the Ocul on the Meta store. I should say Meta, not Oculus anymore. Um, which is um, um, is a project called Space Explorers: The ISS Experience. So, by Felix and Paul, he makes beautiful live action documentary that's shot in the International Space Station. Biggest project ever, media project ever in space. It's quite remarkable. There are four episodes um, and it is extraordinary. It's 360 video, amazing quality and an amazingly moving experience. And then um, we move on to six degrees of freedom. Now this can range. This is a huge area from single person experiences that have very little interactivity or agency, but you're in a spatial world, like Gloomy Eyes, which is another project on the... Um, Quest on the Meta and the Quest store, um, which is a beautiful animation. It's kind of Tim Burton-esque type story um, and between a zombie and a little girl in an incredible sort of diorama world. So that's the lowest form. There's no agency if your eye is led around and you're in a spatial environment. Two things that are very complex, um, long hybrid kind of narrative games that are hours and hours of gameplay so things like one of my favorite projects down the rabbit hole which is made by a swedish studio um Cortopia, and it's kind of a prequel to alice in wonderland and you're in this unbelievable world that's animated where you are moving this girl through the world and she's meeting characters and it's just so much fun it's so beautifully designed it's a game it's a puzzle game um, and then the final thing I'm going to go into is about multiplayer social VR, because I, this is what I've been doing over the last um, couple of years, is what we did in Venice is we had to make a completely virtual edition. I got introduced to VR Chat, which I think is a one of the social VR platforms. Now, loads of people are using the word the metaverse, and it's very confusing, and we can go into that in a bit. Um, but these social VR platforms are... Um, there are quite a lot of them, but my favourite is VR Chat because it's the closest to where people imagine 
the metaverse or this next spatial version of the internet is going. And there are live theatre performances, live music performances, where you're there in Avatar with other people. There are games, there are um, extraordinary um, art worlds within and performance worlds. But those can exist on social platforms or you can make a multiplayer standalone app that you can have multiple people in an experience. And that's where I'm really excited about VR. And when people go especially cinema people go, but it's a singular, you know, you're trapped, it's disgusting, you're dislocated from the world and you're, you know, it's a solitary experience. I would say, I I always find that weird because I think watching any piece of media that's not interactive with, first with with another person, a real person there, um, I said real, that's always a difficult word now, um, is a solitary experience because it's you engaging with the medium anyway. When I go to the cinema, I'm not interested what, I'm not going to keep on talking to someone and say, what are you feeling? What are you doing? What are you feeling now? It's a solitary experience. I happen to be with those people. But in these worlds, you're with other people, exploring them, collaborating, doing incredible things together in amazing avatars of your choice. Also talk about, there's two other things you have. Uh, an emphasis on installation. So there's an installation experience. Um, And then there's also um, live motion capture for a virtual audience. Those are two other contexts that I would be great if you could just briefly touch on those. Thank you for reminding me. So in Venice, the great thing is we are showing the works that can only be shown in a location that can't be in a remote virtual platform. And um, we've shown a number of these types of works that involve building maybe complex sets and having complex technology that people can go into experiences together on site. So the way this happens is um, you have to, your headset or your headset has to be connected to a backpack, which is its own computer. Um, So you're free, it's called free roam. And so it means that you're freely moving around. You're not connected up to a, you know, up to a computer, to a computer. so you're recovered, you're free roaming in a space where you can see other people and interact with them and maybe actors, dancers and performers. So in fairness, I'll give you some examples of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Our biggest production was called the Horrifically Real Virtuality, which is a French group called the DV group. These incredible experiences which, which involve actors and haptics and sets Um, that you generally onboard into some experience. So the first thing we showed, and this is the first thing I did at this time where I had never been in this experience and they did it. They didn't tell me before I tried it out. Um, It was called Alice. Another Alice. Alice in Wonderland is always a good theme. She really gets a lot of, she gets a lot of uh, attention in this, this, this zone. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So it was Alice and I basically got led into this beautiful room. I was at Cannes, actually, at the film festival. And, I, and they invited me to see this thing, didn't tell me anything about it. Went to this beautiful apartment, went through these red curtains into this beautiful room and put on a headset. In a few minutes into the experience, I realised I wasn't talking to an animated character. I was talking to a real person and I was haptically, who was represented by an avatar. So they're real. So what's happening is... They're being real-time motion captured into a virtual environment that I'm in at the same time. And I'm real-time. My hands were, but 
this is the thing in VR. Yeah, you can full body track your participant as well. Which so that was in the midst. So what happened is they did the second thing they did: horrifically real virtuality took you into the world of um, B movies, American black and white B movies, uh, where you met you were with Edward and Bella Lugosi shooting the last movie they did together, and it was a crazy descent that started where you were in the real beautiful set with um, Edward and Bella Lugosi shooting the thing, they captured images that you were capturing that then went into, you went through into a theatre. We have three physical sets. We put on VR and then we went crazy down the rabbit hole into these different layers. And there was it's six people, um, six audience members, and I think there were three to four actors. Um, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty astonishing. It was about an hour long, the is there any documentation that we can look at of these I in any kind of way? There's a trailer um, that you can find. Uh, yeah. Yeah, let, let me know. That that would be great. It's really hard to get these. I know. I know. But there's, there's another experience I can tell you about that I do have a great trailer I can send you the link for, um, for your listeners. Absolutely. So it's, it's called um, VRI, and it's a dance experience by a Swiss choreographer called Gilles Jobin. And it was actually the first multiplayer live mocap uh, experience I tried. And he is exceptional about experimenting with this medium where he mocapped his dancers. Um, there was a you know scene and choreographer. So that was mocap recorded, put into a scene. Then there are avatars for, I think it's six audience members. So what happens is you go into the experience, you're back with a backpack that's connected to a headset. Um, you realize you have your own avatar and there are dancers. They're not in the same space, but you don't, you're not quite sure, but you are in the same space with your audience. And he's playing with scale mm. and embodiment. And it's incredible seeing what different audiences do. So there's a kind of pre-recorded animated part, but it's multiplayer. You are in there. Um, and there's a moment the dancers are in environments where they're the same height, and there's moments when they're giants and they're kind of almost playing with you. And it's an incredible experience suddenly having being embodied and seeing other people you can interact with. So people start dancing together in the scene. Um, he has even an avatar for wheelchair users. Um, and it's been beautiful, some of the different things I've seen. Um, and I can show you a clip that's very good because the best way to explain these experiences is having a split screen where you've got the person mm. filming in the headset and what they see in the headset. Yeah, yeah. So, nice. I mean, that. so what you've just described is, is, is a perfect um, transition to my next question. And that is, you know, in our previous conversations, you've mentioned at least two critical reasons why VR, and in particular, world building is so important to you. One, it's potential for turning taken for granted narratives upside down and disrupting commonly held perceptions of our world. I think that was something that you stressed over and over again in our conversations, both you and I. Um, and then second, its ability to embrace a kind of in-betweenness this magnet for drawing together practitioners who just don't fit into any single category or role or skill set. 
Can you say more about this? Absolutely. I'm going to start with your last point, I think, but I'm sure it will all merge together. That's okay. So I, um, I always, how I got into the working with digital tools and new mediums was because I was working, I came kind of late to this business that seemed kind of crazy and dysfunctional and was kind of locked in this, you know, I could see these things, these changes happening and how it was going to blow apart the, how we engage with each other and how we communicate. And so my natural inclination was to, hey, everyone, look, this is coming. How can we adapt what we're doing to this? And what usually happens, and I totally understand this because I have always been somebody who gets excited about the new and how it's going to change. And some people aren't. And it took me a long while to realize this, that I like things that change. I like the idea we can change. I like the idea with that. And that's kind of terrifying. When you have a, going back to the business idea, there are people who's plus their skills and their, and their, and their businesses and their money and the way they live or their, the way they think is embedded into something. And that's, um, and I'm not like that. So I, you know, for some reason, I never really thought about this till I got older. It's like, why? What does it matter? Well, why can people not see they have to look at this? Because it's going to break apart what they're doing. Or it's going to grid amazing possibilities. So I think stepping out always, you always, I love the idea that we can adapt as human beings and change. And that's what makes me curious. Um, but at the same point, and I'm going to come back to the in-between part, um, because when you start stepping outside of a sector or a silo, um, it's not like you're jumping into another one. And this is what happens is everything's in everything in our world is fragmented in silo. And I'm going to talk so philosophically. I feel knowledge is fragmented in silo. And in a way, we have loads of things that we can find out now um, because they're supposedly all online. If you, you know, de depending on censorship and what comes up, you know, who's paying more money to get it up front. Um, but um, in a way, I sometimes think we become dumber as human beings because our knowledge is, you know, when you study now, you do a very specific, it tends to be, and so much towards technology now and IT and computer science, that is so narrow, same with medicine. When you look at medicine, you go to a doctor and they look at one part of your body. We are a system. We are a system that, um, number one, we're an energy system, our bodies, and then we are connected to the outside and everything we do connects. And depending on your philosophy, some people will think, and I very much think this, we are connected to the universe. So let me go back into the, you know, into the sector of VRs. We're world building. We're starting to build spatial environments where we're, uh, we're de recreating spaces that we can be in and exist in and embody and be present. So to do that... <laughs> We need all the skills to do that. So we talked about the, you know, cinema, immersive theatre and games and, you know, being the three pillars. But we need, if we think about it, how does this affect us? What's it going to do to us? There are neuroscientists and psychologists and people developing, you know, thinking about quantum physics and, sorry, working this area. There, there's people in healthcare and um you know, in therapeutic means, there's so many people because in this space, and that's what makes it exciting. And this, in what happens when you, sorry, going back to this in-between idea is when you step out of your sector, you get put as a thing that doesn't really fit anywhere. And in a way, I feel, 
And I'm not trying to say, oh, aren't I important? But I feel some people who are in these areas, I've seen it in people, so the digital person at a TV company or the digital person at an in an arts organization or cultural organization, or the digital person in a media, a big media or a studio, they're always the person, nobody really understands what they do. And they generally get given the IT and the operations to do along with anything creative. Um, And then after a while, a lot of these people, because they are the people I've come across are people who put into these positions, but nobody, everyone thinks, oh, we have to do a bit of that but it's not really important. And so when there's a cut or there's a strategy change, they're the first people to go. Or they get so fed up with having to explain or try to find a reason to be in a company they leave. So but I, so I, those are the in-between people are really needed because they're what help, who help us adapt and view things in a bigger perspective and make be able to see ways of adapting and to adapt our practice. It's not all about revolution and change. Because I'm a strong believer in, you know, there are incredible disciplines that have been developed over, you know, you know, decades and centuries that we need to respect and lines of thought and social and cultural commentary that is really important that needs to come into this environment. But it's about not seeing these people as these peripheral people, but they are key to any practice or business. You know, 20 years ago, I began working with a variety of cultural institutions in the U.S. who are seeking to expand their audiences through selective integration of new technologies into their programs. We've talked about this. At that time, I experienced a profound resistance, almost resentment toward having to contend with these new technologies and creative processes. This is 20 years ago. Have things changed, Liz? You know, it's funny. I remember where the, when where I, are the point where are the points of of contention that continue to circulate after all these after decades now. I think there's always this fear, and we have you know we see the world as a fear. You know, fear is one of the things that drives people to do unfortunately <laughs> desperate things in the world. Um, but I would say fear is a problem of change. Fear of change is always difficult. Um, And the fact that we don't put some of these in-between people and really deep and strategic people who have, well, you know, have an overview on where things are going culturally, technologically and socially um, in the forefront of organisations and support them, it's still not happening because people are still in their media silos. And often what happens is people go, but there's no business model. There's no business. What's the business model? And you go, come on, this is you, this is the point, is that you either what you're doing is going to be severely hampered by not having the foresight and the strategy to develop what you're doing and develop your organization and practice. Um, and so you don't need to look at they're going to help you to, to find that. And people used to say to that, pound of the pixel, because I run a a big uh, event that was a project finance market, a think tank for commissioners and financiers in a conference um, with leading artists and speakers. And people used to go, why should we fund that? What's the business model? I used to go, well, what's your business model? Because I came from film. I said, that's a destroyed business model. You cannot tell me that is not. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you my bus- you know, what the business model is be or pay me loads of money because people always expect you just to know a networking event to suddenly explain yourself. So that's still a bit there. But what happened is obviously things crumble and people get scared. Um, then when there's money put into something, 
they generally rush towards it. So, for example, at the moment, and there's always these kind of like hype curves of things, and then suddenly traditional sectors go, oh, God, we should be doing that. And then they may, but then it's usually a hype for a while and they get, they go, oh, well, that was a load of rubbish and let's forget about it. So that's what happens. They never give enough longevity or support the fact this has to be a through line. Are you experiencing um, these kind of challenges at the Benis Biennale? Um, the Biennale was amazing to support us in the first place. And that was the president who left a couple of years ago, Paolo Barata. Um, he's a visionary in a way. And Alberto Barbera, who's the director of the film festival, um, who really listened to Michelle and I about, you know, where this was going. And Paolo wanted, he really understood that this, he understood philosophically what this meant. And he wanted to be the person getting behind this new art form, this exciting form. Um, but at the same point, the Biennale is, a, you know, an incredible organisation, and but divided into silos as well. There are events. So, of course, and I think in every organisation, um, it's really hard to do the new thing that kind of fits between so many things. So we're in the film festival, so a lot of it rotates around the cinema industry, and it's always wherever I've been, it's been hard. So I've worked with a lot of film institutions because in outside of the US, in countries that have subsidies, so government or soft subsidy for culture and media. Um, it tends to be the film institutes or the ones who are originally the film institutes, who may have different names now, who have, hold the purse strings. The government gives them, their Ministry of Culture gives the money to them. And I'm, and some of them are further along than others, but most of them are thinking in film styles. So it's quite hard. Tell me, can you discuss any projects, uh, any ideas in development that our audiences need to know about projects on the horizon that will be critical to this field? Well, I'll talk about some, maybe I'll talk about some projects because giving some examples of things that I think are really important to look at. Um, and it's a really difficult area because, you know, organizationally, obviously we don't have the support of organizations. It's very hard with the funding and the uh, you know, the training and getting people working and, you know, the whole ecosystem. So, you know, it's, it's, it's young still. But the things I, and I, you know, it's incredible looking at these studios and artists who are making work. They're using new technologies, which are evolving the whole time. There's no standard business model for them to get financed or distributed um, or exhibited. And they are working so hard on all these different fronts. And it's new creative practice they're developing. You know, it's hard enough making a film yeah. and getting money for it. So I'd say that, you know, it's it's tough because you, you're putting together support from different sectors. So I'm going to talk about some areas where there have been some interesting things. I mean, I'm mad about um, social VR and VR chat. And... I think it's an incredibly exciting space for people to get involved in because it's kind of like, I, I know this is a very weird analogy because it sounds a bit basic. It's kind of like the YouTube of VR in a way, or the social VR, I should say, because you're on a platform where you can upload a world that you've designed in Unity um, or you can start building your avatars in a selection of different software. And there's so much information in groups and the community. So you can start by just visiting and getting into it because it's totally, um, if you have PC just desktop, you can go on desktop, but if you have a headset, obviously it's better. And a connected PC headset is even better. 
Um, but you, this is the first places to visit. And then the world builders are kind of people who wouldn't consider themselves artists, but are doing these spectacular adventures. Um, and so now um, pioneering artists are watching, are starting to work with these mediums. So I'd say the live performance projects and the club scene in VR chat is amazing. I mean, even what, not, tell me some of the live performance that we should look at or be aware of. Um, it's I, something, for example, I'll give you two titles of live mm -hmm. performance. There was something that won our, one of our main awards, our Lions, back in 2020. It was called Finding Pandora X. Um, I'll give you some titles of other things that are happening because it might not be on again. Kira Benzing, amazing pioneering director um, based out of New York. What's, um, what's the person's name? She's called Kira Benzing. Okay. And... This was pandemic-led. So she'd done some amazing experiments. The year before, we had something called um, Love Seat, and it was a live performance with, for 50 people watching actors who were mo-capped into a virtual world that was screened around us. So it was combining already live performance and virtual worlds. She went a step further. Finding Pandora X was a reworking of the myth of Pandora in VR chat in worlds they created. So it's up to, I think, about 15 audience members. And there are three actors who play the gods. Um, so there's Zeus, um, Hera, and Pandora. And um, we, and it was just exceptional. And I tried it at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and you learn to fly. She, they have a mechanism because there's all kinds of things you can do in VR chat. And there are all these plugins. That you know that people these prefabs that people design and release that into the community, and so there's amazing stuff. So I was stuck in my flat. It was the first awful month. It was April 2020, and I was flying in VR chat above this amazing world. And so we showed that it was brilliant. Won an award. Then something you may be able to see again because it's replaying is one of the actresses who's in Finding Pandora X, uh, Deirdre Lyons, and her partner Stephen Butchko did this project called Welcome to Respite or respite in American English. I always say respite is welcome to respite. And it's um, another performance set in VR chat that may have different runs still. Um, we showed it in Venice last year. Um, another beautifully designed world um, in VR chat. But then I want to talk about another thing that I love that we had in our events program last year. It was called Mycelia. And it is an incredible performance by a Canadian artist, Nanotopia, who makes, mush uh, makes music with mycelia or mushrooms in her studio in Canada. And she was performing live into a VR chat world that was designed by an amazing community. Uh, it was five people from that community, the Metaverse crew, who designed this incredible crystal-like mushroom cave world. And she's performing in this incredible stage in the middle of the, this cave. And the avatar, they give you avatars, they're mycelia avatars when you come in. And they, the performers are wearing spectacular. Um, they are so beautiful, the avatars. So she's performing live in Avatar with her mushrooms, with her mycelia for a, a very special MIDI system. And you're there in your mycelia bathing in this incredible world. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever seen in VR chat. So those are the things you recommend. Yeah. So going into, sorry, I went deep into social VR. Yeah. But then some of the experiences, I'll just pick some things that I think are really important to look at. Um, 
I'm really interested in, um, you know, we talked about, you talked about world building and I didn't answer that question about how, this is really important. How do, what kind of worlds are we going to build? And obviously a lot of what happens in these spaces is driven by dystopic visions from science fiction books and movies. And so many people who are in VR are, you know, huge fans of Snow Crash or Ready Player One. Um, or there's many dystopic visions we've seen of what's happening in the media. And they're so negative, the views of who we are as humanity. And I sometimes wonder, is, is our, our dystopias, are the way we are now, have they been designed by artists? <laughs> so, you know, have, have people created them because they've seen them in books and movies? And in a way, you know, the architecture that's built, you know, what's happening in the world, the pandemics, all these things are almost, you know, we've seen all these things. It's not like these people had, you know, some of it I think is inspired. So I think, well, why can't you be, have a different way that you, you know, the importance of what kind of words you build is, is you know, it's so essential that we think about what kind of virtual spaces we're going to be in. And what my main thing for getting in, because I'm not a technologist at all, my main reason for going into this area is because I was thinking, wow, this is going to be, we're going to engage and communicate in such different ways. Um, and it's really important to think ethically and environmentally and aesthetically and therapeutically how that's going to affect us as humans. So I feel it's so important that artists and thinkers and people who have a conscience are involved in this area because first these spaces are going to be really important and then they're spaces where they have all kinds of uses that help us think out ideas and spatial settings, solve problems, embody to a certain extent what it feels like to be in a situation, you know, give you a, 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 you know, some kind of insight, or they have therapeutic, um, you know, uh, therapeutic, um, you know, benefits that are really powerful. And so this is a really exciting space that I think the space between art, technology, our, our minds and bodies and the well-being of our minds and bodies and the world God, is really important. I think this is a great place to stop. Um, some very, very hopeful words. And um, Liz, thank you so much for meeting with us and um, look forward to a lot more conversation with you. It's a total pleasure. Thank you so much for the great conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. looking Thank forward you. to this is the beginning of many. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's Thanks, so Liz. good to see you. Thank you Bye. so much. <laughs>